morning, church. The Old Testament reading for this morning comes from the book about the sufferings of Job, uh, chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. It's on page 515 if you want to follow in your pew Bibles. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another how my heart yearns within me. This is the word of the Lord. The, the New Testament reading will be Luke 20 verses 27 through 40 um, on page 1054. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with the question, Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a man with no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and the third married her. In the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus, re whoop, uh, oh my gosh. Um, Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be forgiven in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher, and no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, good morning. Good morning. Those, uh, those of you who know me even a little bit know about me that uh, I really love sleep, like a lot. And I uh, just have to say, daylight savings time is the best day of the year. Fall, fall daylight savings time is the best day of the year. Spring forward is the worst day of the year. Um, Christmas and Easter are great. But daylight savings might be my favorite holiday. So, and if you're thinking, Tony, I don't think it's actually a holiday. Uh, my heart tells me otherwise. So, uh, before we uh, dive deeper into Luke 20, let's uh, let's pray together.
Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we need you. Um, this is a big week in our country, and uh, many of us feel anxious about the days to come. Many of us are wrestling with how to respond as Christ followers in this moment. We are trying to love in a world so full of violence. God, as we study uh, your response in the face of would-be enemies, in the face of pressure, we pray that you would teach us your way, Lord Jesus that you would fill us again with faith, with hope, and with love. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Together, all God's people pray. Amen. So we are, uh, as Sophia read for us, we are in Luke 20. We continue to, uh, in this season of ordinary time, we continue to follow the the lectionary's journey through Luke. And uh, one of the things that scholars have pointed out about Luke's gospel is that Luke's gospel itself is structured as a journey, uh, an actual geographical journey. Each of the, each of the gospel writers, uh, theologians and literary artists in their own right, have a different way of telling the story of Jesus. And Luke chooses to do it geographically by throughout his gospel taking us on this this journey geographically towards Jerusalem. And by this point in the story, by Luke 20, Jesus uh, is is arriving in Jerusalem and things are starting to come to a head. And within another chapter, uh, Judas will betray Jesus at the start of chapter 22 and the Last Supper and and, uh, the events of... Good Friday and Easter will be set in motion. And so here, at this point in the story, Jesus thus far, he's, he's had these face-to-face confrontations with, uh, with Pharisees throughout Luke's gospel, with uh, some of the, the local synagogue leaders. But now for the first time, Jesus is coming face-to-face with the priests of Jerusalem and the Sadducees in Jerusalem. It is to say, for the first time in Luke's gospel here, Jesus is encountering the establishment. And uh, three times in chapter 20, he gets confronted by priests, or uh, in this particular story, verses 27 through 40, for the first time the Sadducees show up. And they try to pin Jesus, they try to trap him with these, these gotcha questions. At the beginning of uh, Luke 20, it's this question about his authority that they try to trip him up on. And Jesus, of course, responds in this this brilliant, deflective way. And then next comes up this this question about, Jesus, who are we to, to pay taxes to? And he has this brilliant response about, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And then in this particular story, it's, it's the Sadducees who confront Jesus with their own gotcha question. 
the Sadducees, if you don't know who the Sadducees were, they were one of the, the four sects within Judaism located in Jerusalem, a powerful group of uh, aristocrats who had a majority of the, the 70 seats on the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. They were a powerful group, and one of the things that distinguished them from the Pharisees is that they, they didn't believe in a resurrection. They, in fact, didn't believe in any sort of spiritual reality, angels, demons, anything like that. And they try to trick Jesus up in this, this story by giving him uh, this, this absurd scenario to try to, to disprove the idea of there one day being a day of resurrection. And Luke kind of tips us off the first verse. He says, some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, he reminds you know a little information for his Gentile readers who might not be familiar with the Sadducees. He says, these Sadducees who who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with this question. And uh, they tell this story. They say, okay, Jesus, you believe in the law of Moses. And Moses says, he offers this provision in our scriptures that if a man is married to a woman and he dies and they are without child, then his brother should marry his wife so that it's the closest thing to his brother's, his dead brother's bloodline being carried on. And so Moses makes this provision. Well, what, what happens if that happens seven times with these seven different brothers? What happens, uh, what happens then in this so-called day of resurrection? When they all show up, which of these seven men, which of these seven brothers will this woman be married to? It's what, uh, in my philosophy undergrad, I remember a, a type of proof we used to call a reductio ad absurdum, where you, you, you disprove a belief by taking it as an assumption and then teasing out the implications of it and showing this ridiculous conclusion and therefore disproving the assumption. If this follows from this, then this can't possibly be true. And so... They come at Jesus with this gotcha question. They think, here we go, we've stumped him finally. And uh, there's such a lesson for us, uh, again, in, in the context especially of this election week, in how Jesus responds in this moment. Um, so a few days ago, I had to, I had to choose a, a sermon title uh, and this, this seems to happen frequently with me. By the time I have to choose my sermon title, I, I've got one idea where I'm going to go, and then I end up switching. So if you're wondering at the end of this where ecstasies and intimacies fit in, uh, that was sort of the road not taken with this particular. <laughs> Maybe that's a sermon for another day. But a few days ago, uh, I was planning to preach this text as a sort of uh, a treatise, an exploration of the age to come and what we could say about our resurrected bodies. What we could deduce from from this passage and a few other passages like us that give us a little bit of a hint of what our resurrected bodies, our resurrected life together will be like. And there are a couple of things we can can say about that. We have the the prototype of Jesus' own resurrected body, right? As this, this mysterious body that is recognizable that 
allows for relationships to continue beyond death. That is physical, that he, he eats fish with the disciples on the other side of Easter. And yet it's, he also seems to transport into the upper room. He just shows up and he's recognizable, but he still has scars. And what are we, are, what are we to believe about our resurrected bodies? Jesus, Jesus says here that there will not be marriage in the kingdom come. What does that mean? What is that? What can I deduce from that about what my relationship with Jen will be like? We, we talked about this quite explicitly in our Bible study. If you're ever tempted to come to our Bible study, the, you know, we, we, ta- we talked about what, is, what will happen to the sexual part of who we are. I enjoy the sexual relationship Jen and I have. Will that be gone? In the resurrection, will we not feel sexual pleasure anymore? Uh, and it also leads to other questions that sometimes come up to us. Even though, even though the Sadducees give this ridiculous story of you know, a woman being married to seven different brothers, there's a legitimate question to be asked. And well, what about those of you who marry and have a great love of your life and then that person dies and you remarry and are given the gift of a second great love of your life? What will those relationships look like? Or sometimes people have asked me, uh, people who have lost uh, a baby, when we're reunited with our child in the kingdom come, will they still be a baby? Will they be grown? Right? There's all sorts of questions we can explore. But I realized uh, on Friday, after my sermon title was due, that... Uh, that to, to preach a sort of treatise into that and what we can deduce and, and what boundaries we have for thinking through these things. And, and there is a place for that, right? There's, there's a place to explore those things, and it's okay to wonder about those things. But I came on Friday to realize that, that to preach that kind of sermon would be to miss the point of this text. Because Jesus doesn't actually give us this treatise on resurrected life here that answers all of our most burning questions. Uh, one commentator, uh, this was my sort of, well, oh shoot moment, uh, when I realized my old sermon wasn't gonna work. Uh, Usto Gonzalez, who's one of my favorite commentators, uh, he puts it this way. He says, he says, the coming age is different than the present. And the question of the Sadducees ignores the radical newness of the coming kingdom. And he says, this question and many similar questions, Jesus doesn't give an answer to. He says this, Jesus does not attempt to answer such questions, but instead simply calls his listeners to trust to trust the God who has made all things and who will make the kingdom come to pass. To be honest, it's, it's frustrating sometimes that Jesus doesn't give us more to go on, right? I don't know about you, but 
I want to know the mystery of these things. And Jesus, a few different times, talks about the age to come, talks about the resurrection. He gives us a couple images of streets of gold or a a mansion with many rooms. But they're they're grasping. They they show the limits of our imagination. And I don't think it's because Jesus is withholding. I don't think it's like Jesus is like, I could explain this to you, but I'm gonna keep you in the dark. I think I think the life, the resurrected life to come is beyond our imagination. But Jesus does more than just deflect the question. He does uh, something positive here as well. He refuses the the trap of the question. He sidesteps these, is it this or this? He sidesteps the the combative, polarizing dilemma that the Sadducees are trying to trap him in. And then he puts forward instead, as he so often does in these moments, Rather than giving into this combative posture, he puts forward a simple story or drops in a quiet image, which in this case turns, about, it turns out to be an image of the kinship of all people. That in the resurrected life, there won't be marriage. The alleged David Kelsey makes of that, that that the exclusivity of marriage will no longer exist. But instead, those in the resurrected life will all be children of God, brothers and sisters and siblings. He sidesteps their polemical this or this and puts forward this beautiful image of peace between peoples. Father uh, Richard Rohr puts it beautifully with this. He, he uses that language. He, that's where I got this language of sidestep. Jesus sidesteps the traps of the priests and scribes. He goes on, he, he says he won't let himself be manipulated. He won't engage them on their polemical terms. He says this, He says, controversies undermine real faith because they destroy relationships and respect between people. He goes so far as to say uh, he doesn't believe religious debate is really helpful, which I think might be a bit overstated. He says that arguing and debating about scripture and theology is not faith building, it goes nowhere which there's a truth in there, even if I think it is a bit overstated. But then he says this, in such discussions, people either feel on the defensive or the offensive. They don't experience a safe atmosphere of love, but rather a competitive game where battling egos take the place of God's truth, which is, he says, always relational. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I think what Rory's saying here 
is that you can't have the Jesus truth without the Jesus way. And so I think the lesson in this, this pericope of Scripture, in this passage, isn't a treatise on our resurrected bodies, but it's the example of the Jesus way when confronted by our would-be enemies. The lesson here is the, the sidestep, the refusal to take on a combative posture and instead to choose relationship. We, uh, we've got this big election on Tuesday, and uh, I don't think I need to say too much about that. I know many of you uh, are aware of what's at stake on Tuesday, uh, how this is different than an ordinary election and that it feels like what's at stake, what may be at stake in this election is, is democracy itself in some important ways. And there's talk of, of violence. There's people showing up, uh, planning to show up at, at voting sites with guns to undermine the democratic process. And we don't know what Tuesday will hold. We don't know what measure of violence we may see. But in this moment, we have the opportunity to, to choose the Jesus way, to rather than getting sucked into being positioned as, as would-be enemies, to sidestep, to reject relating to another human being as an enemy and instead to choose the path of kinship. And so I wanted to share three uh, images, three, three stories to, to conclude here, three stories of, to, to give us, to, to, to charge our imaginations a little bit with what, uh, what living out the sidestep might look like for you this week. Um, three images. The first one comes from uh, from James Baldwin. So we were, Jen and I were in uh, Wisconsin this past weekend, which is why you had a guest preacher. Uh, it's kind of a family tradition to go there to celebrate our girl's birthday uh, the last weekend of October. And so we got to spend time with my family in Milwaukee, and we got to uh, it was fun. We came back Monday night, but Monday during the day, Jen and, and Oscar and I got to sit in on my cousin Sean's uh, a lecture he was given. Some of you may remember my cousin Sean. He's a theologian. Uh, he did one of our Reformed and Affirming talks for us uh, almost a couple of years ago now. But he's a theologian who studied James Baldwin, and he was giving a lecture at Marquette University on, uh, on James Baldwin's book, The Fire Next Time. And uh, it was it was interesting to, to be back in the seat. It's been a long time since I've sat in the seat in the back watching students trying to stay awake for an hour and a half right after lunch in this dimly lit room. Um, and it was great. And he, he, he walked them through. If you haven't read The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin, I highly recommend it. Uh, Baldwin's writing in 1962-63. And this, this short book is really two letters. One, he writes to his nephew James on the 100th year anniversary of emancipation. 
which he says is being celebrated 100 years too soon. And the second one is a letter called A Letter from a Region in My Mind. And uh, he talks in these works about uh, his theology, my cousin talked about. He puts forward an image of the kinship of all people. And he says the problem with racism and so many of the reactions to it, well-meaning as they may be, is that they, they break apart the kinship of humanity into these human-made people groups. Race doesn't exist. Race is a construct. And that's not to say we should just not talk about race because it doesn't exist, because racism does exist, and it, in this country, pretty much defines so much of the life and well-being of our brothers and sisters and, and siblings in this country. But he says, he critiques a reaction to whiteness that is centered in blackness alone. He talks about uh, his experiences in the black church and in, right, this is in the 60s, and in the, the powerful movement. Uh, he talks about a dinner party with Elijah Muhammad, the leader of the Nation of Islam, and how many Blacks uh, in the 60s were turning towards the nation of Islam for hope. But he says that it, all they're simply doing is, yes, they're rejecting a white God, but to replace it with a black God is to fall into the exact same traps. He says it's the same, it's the same thing they're doing, just in a new way, and ultimately... It continues to divide peoples and fails to possess a way forward for humanity. The only way forward is to reject these categories altogether. To reject the nation of Islam's, this, this powerful movement's image of the white devil that, that faith in a black God can overpower and instead to live into the kinship of all people. He reflects on uh, picking this up as a, as a teenager in his, in his black church in Harlem. He gives this example. Uh, he says, I noticed that we were told to love everybody, and I had thought that that meant everybody. But no, it applied only to those who believed as we did and it did not apply to white people at all. I was told by a minister, for example, that I should never on any public conveyance under any circumstances rise and give my seat to a white woman. White men never rose for Negro, woman, Negro women. Well, that was true enough in the main. I saw his point. But what was the point, the purpose of my salvation if it did not permit me to behave with love toward others, no matter how they behaved toward me. My second example uh, is even more close to home. Um, 
I want to share with you a little bit of uh, a letter written by Neelan Ave Christian Reformed Church, just a few blocks from here, uh, from just a week and a half ago. Um, I won't read the whole letter, but excerpts of this letter that Neelan Ave wrote to the In Loco Committee. Uh, just real quick, in case you have no idea what an In Loco Committee is. I think most of you are up on these things, but a few of you are probably like, what is he talking about? Well, our denomination, uh, you know, this summer uh, really went after one church in particular, and by implication, uh, churches like Neil and Ev, such as us, uh, over their affirmation of same-sex marriage, particularly at Neilan, uh, they're having a deacon who is a woman in a same-sex marriage. And uh, up until this summer, there's been some flex, some uh, autonomy that local church elders have to discern local matters. And there's a, a shift this summer in the CRC to, to do away with that, uh, what's historically has been called the relative autonomy of the local church. And so they appointed Synod this summer, the annual gathering of the CRC, appointed this in loco committee, which uh, I'm tempted to make a joke about that, but I, I'll, I'll refrain. In the spirit of my sermon, I'll just say this in loco committee uh, of people who are trying their best to be faithful uh, to, uh, to admonish, to admonish Neil and Av and to, uh, to tell them they're out of line and that they need to, to back down. And so the in loco committee uh, met with Neilan a couple times in September, met with us pastors at classes Grand Rapids East, came to the classes. And, and I do have to say, I was at uh, at least one of those meetings. Um, they really listened to us. I felt listened to, at least. Um, I can't speak for everyone, but um, I felt like they were they were doing their best to carry out the mandate that they had been given to admonish Neeland and churches like us, like Neeland. Uh, and they're trying to do it in Christian love. And they met a couple times. And then a few weeks ago, they wrote a letter to Neeland F saying, thank you for meeting with us. We admonish you. Uh, and we're going to report back to Synod now. Uh, we've asked you to, to stand down and you've said respectfully, no, uh, our work is done. And uh, I just want to read you two paragraphs of, of Neilan's response, because again, just look for, just like with James Bolton, look for the, the, in the moment, the temptation, right, as Rohr says, to either take a defensive or offensive posture. Look at how they sidestep and choose relationship instead. October 27th, 2022, and this is a public letter, and I called Pastor Joel yesterday. He said, I can read this, right? He said, yep, just don't hand out copies of it, but... So don't ask me for a copy of it, but um, October 22nd, 2022, this is from Neil and Av's counsel to the In Loco Committee, committee uh, assigned to admonish them. On behalf of the Neil and Av CRC Council, I thank you for this official response. The council was grateful for your time with us last month and for the listening spirit displayed by the In Loco Committee. It is because this spirit was evident we are a bit surprised that your letter indicates that our work together is finished. We thought listening was the beginning of your process, as you indicated, and that naturally it would move on to a dialogue aimed at reconciliation. 
You had questions for us, which we answered. We also have questions for you and have assumed that we would have an opportunity to hear your responses to those questions. See how they're inviting dialogue? They're saying, wait, 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 don't just, don't just be done with us. Let's keep talking. There's more. We haven't come to reconciliation. They say, your letter closed with an expression of willingness to meet with Neelan's counsel again. We would like to accept that offer so that we may have an opportunity to listen to you. You have heard from our hearts. We would sincerely like to hear the committee's responses to questions such as these raised by our council members. And they list six questions. I won't read all of them, but just to give you a flavor, I'll read. I like this one. Question number five. How is Neelan's third way making room to live in community while holding differing perspectives considered divisive? And how is the stance of the Human Sexuality Report instead in 2022 not considered divisive? As you are well aware, we do not wish to leave the CRC. So where's the divisiveness coming from? There's six questions like this, right? Like, let's keep talking. We don't feel like we've reconciled. And the letter ends with this. We worked hard to answer the committee's six questions with integrity and sincerity. We trust that you will do the same with our six questions. We look forward to the opportunity to continue this dialogue and to listen in the same way that you listened to us when you visited in September. In Christ, Council of Neyland, CRC. I love that letter. What a beautiful, I have to admit, you know, in, in Sherman Streets, right, we're in this boat with Neyland. My own thoughts, my own feelings, I sometimes step into the temptation of the defensive posture. I'm ready to fight or defend myself or the offensive posture of being ready to hit back. And Neyland does just what Jesus does. They take the sidestep. And they choose relationship over being a winner or a loser. Third and uh, final example uh, to encourage our imaginations this week. Um, this comes from a, uh, a story from this summer. Uh, a lot of you guys know Tori and Rachel Roth. They're in, uh, they moved to North Carolina. Broke my heart. I love those guys. Uh, and they come back. They were back for a month this summer. Um, they still worship with us on Zoom. Um, and I, I called Tori yesterday. I was like, remember that conversation with your dad this summer? Could I share that story? And he said, yeah, go ahead. I think my dad would be cool with that too. Uh, but it was this summer. Tori had just gotten back in town. And uh, I texted him saying, hey, I'm excited to see you. Why don't you come over? We've got pastries. Come hang out on our porch. He said, okay, I'm having breakfast with my dad at Wolfgang's, but I'll come over right after. So he did that. He came over. Um, and I asked him, so how was breakfast with your dad? And he said, it was, it was really good. He said, uh, you know my dad. We, we sat down at a booth at Wolfgang's, and I could tell my dad was already kind of worked up. And he began our conversation by just talking very uh, passionately about the chaos of our times. And you know, Tori, the, these are signs of the end times and the rapture. And, and he said it was kind of a, a mix of 
some, some things from scripture mixed in with what I would describe as Christian nationalism, right? Many of you have these, these same conversations with your own parents or family members. And Tori said, I sat there and at first I could feel my blood pressure, my heartbeat start to go up and I was, I was ready to fight back to say, yeah, but dad, that's out of context to argue with him. But he says, I was able to take a deep breath and instead to look him in the eye, to lean towards him. And I asked him, dad, this stuff is so important to you. That is so clear to me. What is it? that you really want to impart to me right now. And his dad looked him back in the eye and said, I just need to know that I've done everything I can to make sure that my son is in heaven with me. And Tori was, you know, again, he could have argued with that and said, well, that assumes this and this and this, but he was able to translate that to look beyond the words themselves. And he said, what I heard was my dad, these are his words, I wrote these as we were talking yesterday. He said, my dad was really saying, I see in the world a lot of chaos. Which Tori said, I can relate to that. And I don't know what to do with it. I feel overwhelmed in the face of the world's chaos. Tori said, and I can relate to that. But I've been given this promise in Jesus where he said, I can relate to that. And I want my family to walk the streets of gold with me. And Tori said, I can relate to that. Right? He was able to translate. And then he said he was able to respond by saying, oh, dad, I love you too. He was able to hear that what his dad was really trying to say in all this anxious theology and Christian nationalist talk was, Tori, I love you. And, uh, and if you know Tori, he's so good at this. He told me, you know, they, they moved to North Carolina feeling called to live off the land. They bought a big plot of land and they live amongst other people trying to homestead and live off the land. And so he, he, he's like, I have a lot of, I get a lot of time to practice this. Uh, He's like, a lot of my neighbors are very passionate about gun control. And he said, I could, I could argue with them. I can just jump into the debate. I can take that, that polarizing posture that they come to me with. But he says, but I'm learning. He's reading nonviolent communication, and it's teaching him, he said, how instead to wonder, to stay curious, to ask a question of his neighbor like, tell me more about why... This is so important to you. To wonder why, what, what is alive in you? What is the value here? With gun control, he says, it's, oh, you care about your family. I care about my family. There's common ground there that we can relate to each other on. Yes, these questions, uh, one of his favorite questions, was there a moment that turned something on in you that made this important to you? And he says, you know, these questions, they can't be leading questions. They can, you can't, it's not just the question itself. You can't use it as a trap, right, to, to stay in that offensive, defensive posture. He said, but it, when they come from a place of love, they can break open new possibilities across the polarizing 
categories and lines of our times. Friends, this is what it looks like to live like Jesus. To do the sidestep of love. To not relate to each other in just the terms that the world is offering us right now. Whether it's as Democrat and Republican, Republican and Democrat, whether it's in the CRC, may we not posture ourselves against. And that's not to say we don't engage. That's not to say we sit on our hands. Or This isn't the same as just saying, let's agree to disagree. Jesus was deeply engaged. Jesus is deeply political. Jesus wasn't a people pleaser. Jesus got himself killed. Let's continue to disrupt the status quo, to organize, to get out, to vote, to to speak the truth in love, but to do it in love, to do it with a commitment to nonviolence, no matter what sort of violence may come our way. I want to read uh, just Jesus' response one more time in the, in the message, Eugene Peterson's. I love how he captures how Jesus, again, just zooms back in the heat of the moment and offers a perspective of kinship and a perspective of ultimate hope. Again, the Sadducees, so which of these seven will she be married to? We got you, Jesus. What's your answer? Jesus said, marriage is a major preoccupation here, but not there. Those who are included in the resurrection of the dead will no longer be concerned with marriage, nor, of course, with death they will have better things to think about, if you can believe it. And all ecstasies and intimacies then will be with God. Let's pray. Uh, God, our world... It's full of so much chaos and violence. Center our hope again in you. In the age to come, in the day of resurrection, in the day where the kinship of all people will be revealed. And may that hope of your coming, the day of restoration, guide our thoughts, our hearts, and our relationships. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.